You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. When you're confronted with something deeply uncomfortable, maybe even heartbreaking, what's your first response? Most of us shy away from emotional pain, but taken too far, this tendency, this normal, natural tendency to avoid, numb, and distract actually ends up perpetuating the cycle and causing more pain for ourselves and for others in the long run. My guest on this week's podcast is someone who looks pain and discomfort squarely in the face and dives in with the intent to witness and to heal. Michelle Cassandra Johnson has written not one, but two books that dive to the heart of human suffering. And you can hear from her voice in our conversation today that she's just getting started. Michelle is an author, yoga teacher, social justice activist, intuitive healer, and dismantling racism trainer. She approaches her life and her work from a place of empowerment, embodiment, and integration. Michelle published Skill in Action, Radicalizing Your Yoga Practice to Create a Just World in 2017. The second edition of Skill in Action was published by Shambhala Publications in the fall of 2021. And Finding Refuge, Heartwork for Healing Collective Grief, also with Shambhala Publications, came out in July of that year. Her own podcast, Finding Refuge, explores collective grief and liberation and serves as a reminder about all the ways that we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times, and also of the resilience and joy that comes from allowing ourselves this refuge. Whether in an anti-oppression training, yoga space, individual or group intuitive healing session, the heart, healing, and wholeness are at the center of how Michelle approaches all of her work in the world. Let's dive into this discussion about skill in action with Michelle, and I'll see you on the other side. Michelle, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. I really like to start with just a little of your story and specifically your story with yoga, how you found yoga, and what sparked the inspiration to take a teacher training and start teaching? Yeah, a lot of people ask this question and there are different answers to it. Remember practicing what looked like yoga asana, although I didn't know that at the time when I was a teenager, I had this um, VHS tape of Jane Fonda and I don't know where it came from because no one else in my family practiced asana or had a connection to yoga that I was aware of. And so somehow when I was 14, I acquired this tape and would practice movements again, that that are very similar to the movements that I learned when I went through teacher training or when I started to practice asana more consistently and, and meditation more consistently. And I think at that time I was practicing maybe to find some peace, but also to like change my body and change the way I looked. I was a teenager and was a black girl who went to a predominantly white school and felt very different than my peers and actually did have a very different experience. And so I think I was doing lots of things to to change how I was because of what I had internalized 
about Blackness growing up. And then when I went to college, I took a class, a course that was for a credit, for a gym credit. And one of the um, parts of that course, it was yoga. And they did call it yoga. And they taught us, again, it was like yoga asana. I don't remember us learning meditation or anything about the eight limb path at all, but we were moving through similar postures to the ones I practiced with that Jane Fonda tape. And in college, I had an eating disorder. So that theme of like trying to change my body because of what I internalized and maybe perhaps to try to fit in, I'm not exactly sure what was going on psychologically at that time, probably a lot. I went to William and Mary, I went to a predominantly white school. So it was the sort of same thing happening or same um, setting as, as the setting in which I grew up. And I practiced that, that yoga class. And then I moved to North Carolina to go to graduate school to become a social worker. And a friend of mine, his name's Eric, he, took me to the gym to go practice yoga. And when I went to this class, it was very different than what I had experienced before and been exposed to. The teacher definitely felt like a spiritual teacher to me and was reading from sacred texts. I don't know which ones because I was just learning about yoga and, and exposed to this type of, I mean, what yoga truly is, I would say I was being exposed to that. And so I kept going back to his class in this gym. And then one day a yoga studio opened across the street from my house. And it took me about, I'd say maybe two years, three years to go in that into that space. And when I went to the space, it's called Carver Yoga Company in Carver, North Carolina. It's, it's a space I ended up teaching in years later. But when I went, I went to a class and loved the teacher. It was a class that was like Ashtanga based, and I didn't know much about that. And then I started to go practice asana every day and then practice meditation every day. And that is what led me to eventually go to a, a yoga teacher training, a 200 hour teacher training. I was a therapist at the time. So I'd graduated social work school. I'd been practicing for quite a while within organizations, nonprofits, and had a private practice. And I remember working with my clients in that private practice and within organizations and nonprofits and feeling like, you know, we're talking, I worked a lot with people who experienced trauma, specifically sexual violence, intimate partner violence, people who had body image, eating disorders and racial identity work and identity work in general. And so I was working with folks around these different types of traumas. Some of them, the traumas happened to the body and was talking about the mind and body and was not teaching it. And I had this moment where I remember talking to a client about breathing and the connection between the mind and body because of what I was learning in my own yoga practice. And I had this aha of like, why aren't you, why aren't you leading her through this? Like, why are you just talking about it? Well, you know, as a social worker, what I learned in school is like, so much about barriers between clients and myself versus like connection, like what you don't do. And so I think some of why I wasn't teaching her that was because of what I'd learned. Like it wasn't that I was going to touch her as she was breathing. Right. But it was, there was something that felt different about the practice that I was, that I wanted to offer that I so much feel like 
my resistance to it and at that time feels like it's very connected to how I was trained as a social worker. But then I was having this experience as a human practicing yoga, really feeling the mind-body connection and the transformation. And I wanted to offer that. And so that is what prompted me, that experience with this client and this disconnection of like, why am I not teaching her these things? That led me to go to teacher training. And I went to my 200 hour and I, I started teaching at the studio where I went to the 200 hour, which was not Carver yoga because they didn't have a yoga teacher training at the time. And then, and I ended up teaching there as well. And then I went to a 300 hour teacher training as well. And again, yoga teacher training and have spent, you know, now over a decade teaching and practicing and learning more about the eight limb path of yoga. And the other piece of this is that which if you read skill in action and if people are familiar with that this is the story of it that you know when i entered my teacher training i was one of two my 200 hour one of two bipoc folks in the space i think there's one other black person in the space and we were the only people of color there and of course where i was practicing there were predominantly white spaces and so i and i was a dismantling racism trainer as well at that time and continue to be a dismantling racism trainer. And so I had a lens of being in a black body in a white supremacy culture, this experience of living in a white supremacy culture in a black body and entering into spaces focused on wellness, but not seeing myself reflected in them and being really curious about the liberatory nature of the practice of yoga and how I was striving to create liberation in the world through dismantling racism work. And that is what led me to really explore this intersection of justice and yoga. So in Skill in Action, there's a, a quote I wanted to ask you to unpack. It's important to understand that injustice, racism, and a lack of civil rights affect us all. And the work of understanding how is important for everyone. So the, you just started to touch on it, and it seemed like the right moment to ask you to dive a little bit deeper because I, I think we understand more after the last couple of years, but this is still a big barrier for folks where it doesn't seem pertinent or urgent to them if they're in a white body. And what I hear you saying in Skill in Action is no, it is imperative. And the fact that you're not able to recognize that is, is your big problem, like your big barrier to liberation, to your own liberation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the quote that you just shared is from a list of assumptions and the list of assumptions and skill and action is, and assumptions are just a tool that I use to explain more about my belief system and philosophy. And so those assumptions, we created them as a collective dismantling racism works as the group that I worked with for many years. And that was one of the assumptions we came up with. And we ended up coming up with assumptions because we wanted to acknowledge we weren't neutral as we were holding space, as we were guiding people through. So I always talk about them as a tool to acknowledge our lack of neutrality because dominant culture really doesn't allow us to be neutral because of our different identities, which really points to the sort of essence of, of the quote you offered, which is is speaking to the fact that sometimes people who are doing organizing work, and in particular white-bodied folks who are like learning about how racism operates, thinks that, can think that it's for 
just for BIPOC people, right? Just for Black, Indigenous, and people of color that we're going to work on behalf of, right? Not in connection with, not in solidarity with, but on behalf of, because we don't want BIPOC folks to have this experience anymore. And, and that kind of thinking really does not allow white-bodied people to understand how the white supremacy culture is affecting them as well. And it, and it doesn't really allow us to see how our liberation is bound and interconnected. And it's, it's like, I mean, that pattern of let's work on behalf of, right, or create civil rights for folks who are less proximal to power is such a, it's, it's embedded. It's like an, a deep old pattern in organizing work and, and really injustice work. It's present. And I think it really limits our capacity to, to see the ways in which our liberation is, is interconnected. And it also, in so many ways, can give white-bodied folks a pass to be like, I don't need to engage in this, or things are better, or we're post-racial, or I've done my work, right? So I don't need to think about how this culture is affecting me too. And it, I think, can create conditions where bypassing is, is happening, which is really dangerous. And it's part of, you know, when we bypass the reality of what's happening, that's part of what continues to perpetuate the, the, the harm, the violence, the oppression that we are experiencing as a collective, although we're experiencing it differently based on the identities we embody. Can you say a little bit more about bypassing? I know that it's been in the conversation more and more recently, but I think it's useful to have a refresher on what exactly is bypassing. And then specifically, I think it's most important to recognize it in ourselves, right? It's kind of easy to recognize outside of ourselves, but Mm -hmm. what's your advice on learning to recognize it on the inside? Yeah, so... I first learned about spiritual bypassing. I think it was before I, I wrote Skill in Action. I don't know if I was in a workshop or someone mentioned it and I looked it up, or, but I learned about it and read about it. And my understanding is that John Wellwood, who was part of a Sangha Buddhist community and a psychologist, coined the term spiritual bypassing. And he defined it as because he was in both spaces where he had clients coming into his office who were addicted to spiritual practice and actually using spiritual practice in a way that that meant they were avoiding what what needed to heal and, you know, engaging in their own healing. Right. He saw that pattern. And then in his sangha, he saw and he talks about this as as a hazard of of the practice right towards enlightenment that there was this bypassing around the reality of, of what people were experiencing, right? The harm, the violence, the oppression, our experience as humans on the planet, creating suffering for each other and for the planet, right? He saw this, this avoidance of that because people were working towards enlightenment as if they could transcend the relative truth, which is everything that's happening around us to us and everything we're, we're doing to one another and the planet and all beings. And it really struck me when I read um, his definition and just read more about him and because it made me think about, it, it's bypassing described in a, in a spiritual context, but bypassing happens all of the time. Like dominant culture, which is, you know, a culture that's connected to dominance and superiority and systems and, and structural oppression, dominant culture really wants us to bypass the relative truth and to avoid it and act as if it's not happening because then dominance thrives, right? In that space. And we're not interrogating how we've been socialized, how we've been conditioned, the systems we've inherited been born into. Dominant culture doesn't want us to interrogate those things because once we do, 
I believe there's a reckoning process and then there's potential for us to change who we are and how we are to one another. And I think we're like constantly in this process of reckoning. It's what I experience and what I see. And I feel like spiritual bypassing is a reflection of bypassing in general, right? So I think it comes from this way of, particularly if we have more privilege, that gives us this, we can check out of the work, right? We can say it doesn't affect us. It doesn't matter, right? Why are those people doing that? Why are they complaining about that? Like that is what it can can look like and how so many people are trained. And I think then what derived from that is spiritual bypassing, but it's it's tricky in spiritual communities because we have these absolute truths that are presented to us that people can sort of hold on to and work with as a way of avoiding, as I name the relative truth, like we are one or we are enough or colorblindness comes from this as well, right? As if we're having the same experience or what we've seen in spiritual communities around why are we talking about Black Lives Matter or I'm tired of talking about that. Well, we're talking about it because dominant culture and white supremacy still do not value black lives like and never have. So that's why we continue to talk about it. And what I what I notice in myself around bypassing because you you you're right like I think it's easier to point to other people and say they're bypassing in these ways and it's it can be more difficult to see the ways in which we are participating in in bypassing and spiritual bypassing. And I think what I named about in sort of interrogating the way we've been socialized and conditioned is a, it's a practice. And I actually think spiritual practice can invite us into this because in my experience, it has invited me to uh, be with the things that I do not like about myself or label as not liking. It has invited me to be with the painful things that are happening in the world and the, the way I'm contributing to that and the suffering on the planet. It has invited me to be with the like messy, icky stuff that comes along with being a human, right? And in relationship with other beings. And so I think the practice of, of you know, understanding how have I been trained by the culture, which often people describe as the air, right? Or the water we're swimming in, that's pretty common. And some of us know what the air is made of because of our proximity to power. And some of us do not based on the identities where we're assigned privilege or advantaged. So I think this practice of asking how have I been conditioned? What stories have I been told about who I am and who others are? I also think a practice of understanding that intentions, which often can be connected to absolute truths are very different than the impact we have on others and, and the planet as well. I think these are ways that we can begin to, you know, investigate different layers of who we are, which I think yoga asks us to do. And I, I think it asks us to do that so we can actually decide how we want to be, not to just like be in this inquiry of it over and over, but like, what are we going to do once we discover something new? What, what will we do when we discover how we've been conditioned? And that's, you know, so many of us have been lied to about how the world turns and works and operates and that we're not all the same and we're not having the same experience. So I think that's what I would say about you know, recognizing it in ourself, assume you've been conditioned in a, in a, I've only grown up in America, the U.S., so I tend to focus on that. I don't, I don't know the experience in other places, but I do know colonialism and colonization and, and that kind of thought definitely has shaped how people think of themselves and others across the globe. So we'll say that. I, I think it's such an important practice to, 
to really consider and, and, and assume that we've been conditioned into a system, into a way of thinking, and that we can engage yoga to help us understand more about that. And that can help us decrease the amount we're bypassing. It seems like the potential for spiritual practice is that our connection to something that is perfect and whole and complete in an ideal world would allow us, would give us space to be imperfect and to do our work imperfectly in this world, right? Because the bypassing, I think, can come from this feeling like, oh, I'm not going to do it right. I can't, you know, like, I, let me just turn and look at this. Let me just turn and look at this, you know, this place that's promising me this sense of completeness, the sense of connection, instead of saying, no, this is here to resource you <laughs> so that you are able to show up imperfectly and to kind you know, and you talk about this in a really, I think, a balanced way in skill and action specifically about resourcing yourself to allow the messiness to allow yourself to take that action imperfectly, even though it's, it's skill in action, that doesn't mean perfect action. Right. Right. That's right. And I mean, so much of what I talk about is it's messy. We are imperfect. We will make mistakes. We're, I mean, everything is falling apart. Like that's what's happening right now. <laughs> that's what I think is happening right now. doesn't mean we're broken or we're not whole. I'm just saying like the reality is it's, we're in a mess. We've been in one for a long time. So that means as we do this work and we practice to, to understand more about ourselves and what we've learned and we begin to question, that's going to be messy. That's transformation. It's like, that is how transformation happens. It's, typically it's not, there may be ease, but it's not easy. A lot is revealed in a transformative process, which I think we're in right now in so many ways. So and I think this, this idea that it will be perfect or we can contain like ourselves and, and not respond to what's going on and what's falling apart. I think that is like, so capitalism, white supremacy, culture, systems of dominance, contain, don't react, don't respond, don't acknowledge. And that feels like it just, I mean, flies in the face of reality and that this is going to be messy. And if people want it to be clean, and clear and there to be closure, that's not, that's not my experience of spiritual practice. And that's not my experience of doing the work that I do around trying to, to create a more liberatory world, right? And a world in which we all can be free. That's another quote. This is from Skill in Action on page 81 that I pulled out. It's liberating to sit with multiple truths. It allows for more spaciousness, understanding, and connection. And I feel like for me, that has been the through line of all of my own spiritual seeking is get comfortable, not knowing, <laughs> get okay. Not knowing at least you don't have to be comfortable. In fact, it's, you know, it's probably a good sign to not be comfortable a lot of the time, but it's a tough one to reconcile because like you're saying, this is the exact opposite of what you call the dominant culture specifically what it brings to my mind is sitcoms, right? It's like they tie each episode up with a bow at the end and everybody feels like everything's going to be okay, but that is not real life, right? I mean, we watch sitcoms to numb ourselves out and to get away from 
the fact that real life is messy. I don't, I don't know that I have a question about that. I just wanted to pull that quote out because it really spoke to me. And I think that when we're talking about bypassing, that that might be like the most important piece to reconcile is Mm -hmm. (laughs) multiple truths. And then like you were saying, it's messy. It's imperfect. I also have a note about the agreement of non-closure. What is it and why is it important? I think they were connected. Yeah, they are. Um, the practice of being with multiple truths and and also offering counter narratives to dominant culture and knowing we're not all having the same experience and non-closure feel very connected. Non-closure is an agreement that so different than an assumption, although sometimes it's listed in the, the assumptions because it's like the reality that we're not going to wrap this up, but the agreement for people to be with what you named as the not knowing, to not have all the answers, to not have the list about how to change everything at the end of a two-hour training or a weekend training or a year-long training, right? Like spiritual practice is ongoing as is creating conditions for justice until we arrive there in this place where there is a just world until we create it. So non-closure can feel very uncomfortable for people, I, I'm kind of used to it and, 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 and appreciate it. Although I would love for us to stop harming each other. Like I want us to stop doing that and learn what we need to do. I really do want that. And I feel like non-closure is so much more representative of what so many of us experience and how we feel like things are raw. They're open. They're messy as we've spoken about. Sometimes there aren't clear answers. Sometimes we need to sit with the questions more, which is often how I talk about non closure is to be with the questions. And, and spiritual practice has really taught me how to be with the questions and probably life, but definitely spiritual practice to be with the questions, be curious. I don't want to stay in the place of, of just being with the questions. I do want to take action. So both feel important to me, but non closure is really connected to the ways in which people feel like I'm going to get a list about how to fix these things and then they will be better. That hasn't happened. And there are plenty of people who have, you know, multiple lists about the 10 things we need to do (laughs) to do so many things, right? Those lists. And, and still it's not the issues that we're talking about now are they haven't been resolved. And so it's about something deeper. Like transformation is not about the list. It is about an ongoing process that I think we'll be engaged in for forever might change, right? But we'll be engaged in it for the long haul. Yeah, the metaphor that comes to me is layers where, you know, as soon as we reconcile with one layer or heal one layer, then there's the next layer to look at. And we don't know what's beneath it because we have to go through the current layer to be ready (laughs) for the next layer. One other thing that, came to me as you were speaking earlier, really starts to point to your next book, Finding Refuge, Mm -hmm. which is this idea that healing comes when we turn towards our discomfort instead of away from it. It's also related to the spiritual bypassing, I guess, but, but finding refuge is like this entire work all about turning towards your pain. (laughs) And, um, personally, I saw that and I was like, oh shit, (laughs) I don't want to do this, you know, and I have been working with that concept for a while. I, 
my mom passed away almost 10 years ago. And so it's been a long, it's been a lot of layers. I'll just put it that way. And I, I think the past two years has been an acceleration. It's like <laughs> the layers are coming off faster. That one concept, if we can turn towards our pain and our discomfort with curiosity, instead of running away from it, I'm not saying that that's going to make our world a utopia, but I really think that that is the key to transformation as far as like all of the truly dysfunctional things that are happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to ask you to go too deeply into this because I know you do, like you wrote a whole book about it, but what was the moment for you? What was the catalyst for you where you had that recognition of like, oh, I really can't run away. I really need to turn towards it. I appreciate what you said about, you know, turning towards our discomfort and pain and the resistance around that or the fear. It's often connected to that kind of practice and it feels like it's, it is the practice and, and part of spiritual practice to do that. And it's not easy. And I recognize that in writing a book about collective grief, which includes personal stories of grief, but they're all connected to what's going on around us and what's happening now and what we're experiencing on the planet at this time and these human bodies. I recognized when I, when I sat down to write it that one, it wasn't going to be an easy thing to write. And also it's not an easy process for people. And so I kind of knew, and I think skill in action is similar because of when it came out, like it came out before so many people within the yoga community started talking about justice in yoga. You know, it's sort of, it's, it's almost mainstream now in a way, which I'm glad about if it's authentic, but it came out before that. So there was this, like, we need to actually talk about this thing and reckon with it. Finding refuge feels similar. And especially the fact that it, I mean, it came out in July of this year, um, it, still in a pandemic, right. And, and responding to so much collective grief. So the timing feels synchronous to me and, and the moment there's so many moments, but I think the moment that I, that really stands out to me and that I wrote about in Finding Refuge is after the acquittal of George Zimmerman for murdering Trayvon Martin, everything cracked open for me. It isn't that I was new to being Black. I'd been Black my whole life up until that point. And I was understood about, I understood white supremacy and talked about it and educated people about it. And so I had a framework to understand. So it wasn't, it wasn't new or even the, the brutality of that. That wasn't new, right? These things have been happening for a long time, but something was different. And not just for me, when I spoke to other Black people and in particular Black people who were about to birth Black babies, there was something that happened in the universe in that moment for people. And there was a lot of fear as I was talking about people who are about to bring Black babies into this world, like what is going to happen? So I, I don't think it was just me in that moment. And it, it feels akin to the murder of George Floyd and, and sort of people's like, what, where are we living and what are we doing to each other? I feel like it's very similar to that. That's how it felt to me. And so after the acquittal, I was, I mean, I had a grief response that I had never experienced before. I was on a 
the floor. It was concrete floor in my kitchen. I fell to the floor when I read the news and I was wailing and not really clear what was happening. So I was watching the trauma and I was watching all of the grief come out and I didn't really know what was happening and it was quite scary. And, you know, for a while I tried to go to work, although I didn't go to the work the day, work the day after that, because I couldn't get out of bed, but, but I was an elected official. I was a yoga teacher. I was a therapist. I was like in the community in so many ways. And so I was in a partnership, like there was bad friends. There were so many things that I felt responsible for. And like people I was in community with and felt like I needed to respond to. And I tried that for a little while and it didn't, didn't work. Like ultimately what I was told, and I say that because I have a deep connection with my ancestors and, and what I was told from them and my practice is like, you have to sit with this. Like you've never felt this before. You don't exactly know what's happening. This is like centuries of grief moving through you. It's not just yours. It's your ancestors. It's the world's grief. It's what are we doing? Are we going to keep doing this to each other? It's grief around that. It's anticipating the next murder that will happen, right? Or the next, you know, system that will try to annihilate people for the identities they embody that are constructed, the dominant culture created in the first place. So it was, it was all of that. It was massive grief. And I now understand like that moment is like part of my ancestral assignment and led me to write Finding Refuge to be like, here's a resource. Here's what I think's going on. Can we turn towards this? And can we work with it? And can we stop trying to avoid our, our heartbreak? Because there's something about getting connected to that and in touch with our heartbreak that might actually help us heal, right? That happened. And every time I was meditating every morning during that time in my life and, and still do. And every time I would sit to meditate, my practice let me know that I, I had to be with the grief. And when I tried to avoid it, it, you know, the breath would be like, and I think I wrote this, like it would coax me back into being with the grief, being with the sensation, being with the, the suffering, being with the not knowing, being with the anticipation of more harm, right? And, and the practice ended up holding the, the experience in a way that my body really couldn't. And I mean, this is why I think practice is essential some kind of practice for us all. For me, it's a, a yoga practice and contemplative practice. But it really, I keep saying this, I've been saying this for the last six months, like our practice can hold um, that which we don't think we can hold, right? It can, in my experience, that's what it's done. And it certainly did that through the experience of, of responding to the acquittal of George Zimmerman. And it, and it has this, I mean, this connection to something bigger, right, as part of my practice, it just has the capacity to hold more than I think I can, and I actually think than, than we can. And, and in this way, we can, we can resource ourselves with the practice. My grief didn't consume me. I keep saying this because I'm here. It, it really tried to, like, and, and without a practice, I'm not sure. I don't know where I would be. But my practice kept saying, we can hold this. And my ancestors kept saying, this is your work. And I was like, I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. I don't really want to do this. Um, but I know <laughs> to trust my ancestors and the, my intuition and the guidance, right, from spirit. And I know, I know that now 
And a lot of people, I, I named this because a lot of people feel afraid of opening the doorway to heartbreak and grief, which is real because of how grief can feel like and the different things associated with it, like anger and sadness can feel like an anxiety. They're going to consume us. I mean, this is where we are. We're in a time of great uncertainty. It's been going on for almost two years. I mean, it's older than that, but this particular, I'm talking about the pandemic and the uprising, two years of this. People's nervous systems are completely overwhelmed. There's so much pain to respond to, right? I get the fear because of the gravity of the, the moment, the situation and what we're in. And, and I just keep reminding myself, I opened the doorway and I'm still here. And so something happened that allowed me to be here and I believe that that's possible for others if they are able to turn towards their heartbreak and open the doorway a bit. You talk about the, the fear of being overwhelmed. And one of the things that is different and seems to be accelerating is our access to information. And there's been so much good about that, right? There's been this awareness and, and these videos. At the same time, so much information can either lead to being re-traumatized or it could lead to just overwhelm and the desire to numb. So I'm curious about how you personally approach the balance between staying informed and also protecting yourself and, and making space for your resilience. Yeah. Thank you for this question. So one, I don't watch the videos. I think that we have enough information and we know what's going on. Somewhere we do, we just have to remember. That's what I believe. And so the reason I don't watch the videos is because of what you said, it is re-traumatizing. And there are so many videos now. And before there were videos, there were so many acts of violence like that, that I can read about or that I can see images of, or, you know, like lynchings. I can go and see an image of that, right? That's been around for a long time, those photographs and people like showing up for the lynching as if it was a, a party, right? So, so this is what I mean. I think we have enough data. And I actually understand why and there's a lot of like tension around this. I feel like for folks, why some white-bodied people would want to watch the video because there's no way white-bodied folks really understand or can understand the experience of white supremacy in the way BIPOC people can. And it's like the closest, like if, if one can like see the video and then feel into their bodies, but it's not the same experience, but that's like as close as I think a white-bodied person will get to feeling the pain associated with living in a culture that does not want you to be and, and works overtime to not have BIPOC people and many other people who are, who are underestimated communities and marginalized, right? And so I, I understand why um, that would feel compelling and, and be a moment of learning. And I know a lot of BIPOC folks are like, don't stop posting the videos. Like, don't keep traumatizing us. We know what's going on. And so I think we, white body people and BIPOC people actually do what we know. I don't know if we understand, but we do know that trauma is happening, that it's old, that it's been happening for a long time based on race and other identities and, and points of oppression and systems of superiority that create oppression, right? We know this. And so then it's like, well, what do we want to what do we want to do with this? And so I just don't consume that information because I have enough information about it. And I also am really, when you were talking about overwhelm and the time we're in, um, 
you know, two different, two things. So one is that at the beginning of the pandemic, the practice that I have every morning, which is to pray, to meditate, to journal, to often I'll pull a, a card from a divination deck or Oracle deck. And that I've been doing that for years. And that practice is really powerful. And it, when I first started practicing in that way every day, it really, I was in a crisis. And so it really helped me move through that crisis. Like there was some, I could go and sit at my altar every morning. The pandem pandemic began and that practice, I needed something in addition to that because the practice couldn't meet the moment. I've never lived through a pandemic. Like, you know, my meditation practice wasn't meeting the moment. It was allowing me to touch into what was going on, but it was not holding all that was happening because we've never moved through this experience. And I say this because to take care of ourselves and instead of numbing out, maybe we need a different practice or maybe we add something to our practice or maybe we practice in a different way to meet the moment. So there's, there's that piece. And I'm also really big on like taking care of myself and boundaried and not boundaried to create barriers, but I try not to take on things that are not mine. Uh, and that's not, I didn't come out of the womb like knowing how to do that. I had to learn how to do that. So, I mean, I think that's a process and a journey and I still have to learn how to do, like it's, it's ongoing. I just wanna be clear with people about that. It's not like I'm an expert in boundaries. Although I, I am, I've become much better over time at, at recognizing when I need to resource myself so that I can continue to show up in the world in the way I do. And that feels like a skill that's really important. And I think that's a skill that people can, can hone and, and work with. Like, what does it mean to take care of myself in the face of everything that's going on? I didn't say check out. I said, how do I resource myself? Which does include knowing what's happening in the world, right? But I'm resourcing myself in response to that knowledge so I can show up more fully in the world and continue to do the work I do. And so what it, yeah, I would invite people to think about what is that for them? Because numbing out is, there are so many things to move us away from ourselves in this experience of being fully alive at this time. And it can become a, just a pattern, a sunspire, right? This, this numbing out and capitalism wants us to numb out and there are all these addiction, right? Numb out. There are all these different things that make people numb out. And that will never allow us to heal, even though I understand the behavior and I've done it myself. I'm not judging it. it. Just, we won't heal. We'll just be in a place of not feeling. And that not feeling has gotten us into trouble. It's meant like we've dehumanized people because we don't feel ourselves in what we're doing to others. So that's what I would offer to people as a skill. Like how can you resource yourself in the face of what's happening right now? And like staying connected to it and engaged and take care of yourself. So you can show up in the world connected to other beings. I love that. One of the ways that I think we feel we need to be connected is through social media. And I'm taking a break from social media for the month of December. And it has made such a huge difference in my mental space. And I've talked to people and I've had these thoughts myself of like, oh, I'm going to miss out. I'm going to not be informed. I'm not going to not, I'm not going to know who got married. I'm not going to know, you know, what, everybody's talking about. Like, I don't know what everybody's talking about right now, which is kind of lovely actually. 
And I feel like it gives me more space to go deeper. Like for example, your books, I noticed I had more sustained attention to like really pay attention to them than Mm -hmm. I would have a few weeks ago. And so that's really showing me like what that, like all of these snippets of information in this fast moving pace of social media is doing to our brains. So I love what you said about resourcing yourself. And I also love what you said about your practice needs to change and adapt to the times and you need to be sensitive to what you need. It's going to shift over time. So I just want to offer that up to anybody listening. If you are struggling with your relationship with social media, if you wonder if it's making you anxious, take a break because I've been, I mean, it's only been a couple of weeks and I've been really astounded and I kind of feel like I don't ever want to go back. Yeah, I feel that for sure. And, and hear what you, I heard what you said about, there's more capacity to go inward and deeper. It sounds like that's what you were describing, right? Because you're not, I mean, I think social media like pulls us and distracts us and is like a way to numb out. I do that. Like I get that. And how liberating it is to, to allow yourself to take a break from that and, and go deeper and then decide, you know, do I want to go back or how do I want to use this tool, which social media can be a tool, right. For, for good, for organizing, for change, for all of these things. Yeah. I'm taking a break later this year. Well, next year, we're almost in 2022 for three months. And I'm considering going off of social media for at least one of those months. I don't, I don't really love social media and it's a way to communicate and connect with people who would not otherwise be able to connect with me or or learn with me or, you know, whatever it is. So I, I see there's value in it and giving, giving ourselves a break feels um, so useful and, and important. And right. There was, I remember I'm 46 and a half. I remember when we didn't have social media and we like called each other up on the telephone or we wrote a letter like there was a time when that happened, right? I wasn't like on Instagram or Facebook sending all the stuff. Right? There was a time, not that long ago, actually. So I always go back to that because I was like, there was a way that we communicated and people would come to the trainings and like, we would hang a flight, like it happened. People did the stuff we're doing now just differently. So I, I love to think about that because of some of the fear people have about letting go of it. It's like we, we did it differently before and it worked. Maybe we could do that again. I think so. And at the very least, we can incorporate some of those into our lives and and set, you know, set boundaries around mm-hmm. social media. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Right. I, you know, I think that there's different ways that we can examine our relationship with it. But personally, I find at least a period of abstinence is really helpful for resetting the relationship and evaluating, like, what role do I want this to play in my life? Yeah, it feels like a really important practice and and skill to know and question to ask about relationship. Yeah. So the entire book, Skill in Action, is basically your checklist of what you wish yoga teacher trainings would incorporate. I'm, I'm making this interpretation, but it sounds like from the stories you tell about it, that, that you wrote it because this was the, a piece that you felt was missing from the wellness community and then the yoga community in specific. And I have this question that I generally ask 
which is if you could wave a magic wand and influence yoga teacher trainings all over the world and just make one specific change, what would be your top priority? It would be to teach the um, full eight limb path. Because in that, I feel like, I feel like justice is inherent in that path if we apply the teachings to the current context. So that, because so many teacher trainings in my experience really focus on asana and not the other parts of the path. And that perpetuates so much of what is written about in skill and action. You know, the exclusion, like our, our misinformation about what yoga is and the exclusionary nature of it. And this expectation that all bodies move in the same way and they don't, or that all bodies are the same and they're not. So that would, that's my answer to teach the full eight limb path and to engage people who, who can do that in the training, right. Who understand the different parts of the path and, and to really reinforce it's a path. So like people will graduate their teacher training. They're not done. It's a practice and it's a path. So that's my answer. That's beautiful. Beautiful answer. Is there anything that we haven't talked about today that you feel is missing from this conversation or anything that just stands out to you as something that you want to emphasize? Well, there are two things. One is, I don't know which edition you read of Skill in Action. The second edition came out in November and it's a much deeper dive. So just say that for people who have the first edition, I sat to, down to write the second edition and thought I would be updating a few things and ended up writing a hundred more pages and changing story. Like there's a lot more depth in it because of my experience of putting skill and action out in the world and then traveling and communicating with people and sitting with questions and my own evolution. So I'll offer that and um, say that for folks who may feel some trepidation about working with finding refuge, heart work for healing, collective grief, that it really is offered in the spirit of healing and wholeness. And I've had some people share with me that they've, you know, moved through it and are working with the practices, just something people can go back to. And at the end, feeling whole, like coming into wholeness. But, you know, when they started to read it, they expected to be like deep in their grief, which could happen. I mean, it, it really does stir that. And I really have appreciated hearing people's different experiences and this, this idea that, oh, this is to bring us back into wholeness in the way we talked about earlier. This is to bring us to a space of healing. So want to name, name that as well. That feels important. And if listeners want to find out more about you and your work, want to order your books, where's the best place for them to go? My website is michellecjohnson.com and I have the books are there. I have a calendar of events that's updated all the time with workshops and I'll be offering a lot of virtual and, and some in-person, depending on what happens, workshops in 2022. So um, that's the best way to connect and be in community. And I also, I have a podcast called Finding Refuge, which is a, it explores what Finding Refuge, the book explores. If people are interested in that kind of resource, it's, it's there and, and on the website and yeah, I have really appreciated the people I've been able to sit with and speak with and really focus on how they're finding refuge during this time. Thank you, Michelle, for the work that you're doing. And thank you for taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you so much for the work you do in the world and for inviting me to be here.
Well, it's hard to know what to say after that type of conversation. As I was talking to Michelle, I admitted that my first reaction to hearing the topic of her second book, Finding Refuge, was basically aversion or avoidance. And I know I'm not alone in feeling that initial desire to push grief away. Ever since my mom died nearly a decade ago, I felt this reckoning with grief looming and starting to play at the edges of my experience of life. You see, my mom's death was a difficult one. And I know that I have some trauma around it. And my response, my initial response to that trauma was a numbing. So I know I haven't fully grieved her. And I also notice that that's changing. In fact, this past year, I've experienced more grief over her loss than the previous eight years combined. And I also recognize that I'm, in a sense, just getting started. So to me, a person who knows how to grieve, (laughs) who respects the process so much as to write an entire book and create a, a podcast around it, That's a very brave person. What strikes me about Michelle is that her particular flavor of bravery holds this dichotomy of fierceness and compassion. She seems to call upon the fierce only when kind doesn't cut it. I hope that my conversation with Michelle touched you and sparked a willingness in you to face some of your own discomfort with that fierce compassion that Michelle demonstrates. If you think you'd benefit from some guidance on how to bring this work into your practice, both of Michelle's books are filled with rituals, journaling prompts, and meditations. Whether you feel called to use her tools or you have your own way of working or your own guides, I sincerely believe, as I said during the podcast, that turning towards our pain instead of away from it is basically the work that the rest of yoga is just hinting at. And we can't do it all all at once, at least I can't. So baby steps are definitely allowed. But make this commitment and surround yourself with people who won't let you forget it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring enough to teach yoga and to do your own brave work.